Well, I'm excited today to have all the way from Singapore, Scott Anthony, the co-author of Eat, Sleep, and Innovate. Scott, uh, please take off your, unmute yourself. Great, wonderful to have you, Scott. And of course, uh, Scott being in Singapore, that's why we're starting at nine in the morning and we're thrilled that uh, Scott was glad to speak with us at nine o'clock at night at Singapore, one of my favorite countries because I taught seven years for the National University of Singapore. So welcome, Scott. Thanks, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. And nine in the evening is a nice early start tonight. This is the nature of the world when many of the people in your organization are in the United States. It means the midnight oil often goes late, but uh, 9 a.m. is a nice, nice, easy time for you and a not too bad time for me. So good yeah, morning. It, it, it works out great. Uh, please tell us a little bit about your background and the firm you are a partner in, uh, Insight. And I met the founder years ago, Christian Clayton, uh, uh, Clayton Christensen. Yeah, so just a, a brief overview of Innocite. So Innocite was co-founded by Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen and my colleague Mark Johnson back in 2000. Our purpose as an organization is to empower forward-thinking organizations to navigate disruptive change and own the future. Clayton Christensen, for those of you who don't know him, in 1997, he wrote the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, that described how disruptive changes would come into markets and unseat even the best-run incumbents. 20 years ago, I was a student at the Harvard Business School. It was about 20 years to this date, as a matter of fact, that I, I met Clay Christensen. I took his class my second year of business school. I did two years of research with him. We co-wrote a book together called Seeing What's Next, 2003. I joined the team at Innosite, and the last 17 years of my life have been dedicated to advancing that mission. The first seven years in the United States and since 2010 out here in Singapore. Well, again, I'm thrilled to have you. And I, I wish that I could actually eat, sleep, and while I'm sleeping, innovate. That would be really a great trick to pull off. So why did you write this book and what's the title mean? Hey, you know, Mark, so one of the, the origin stories of the book is just dealing with a, a fundamental puzzle. I, I have four children. The oldest is 14. The youngest will be four on Saturday. I've been advising organizations about innovation for about 17 years now. I don't have to advise my children how to be innovative. They just naturally are innovative because they're children. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later on, but it seems to be so hard for organizations. So what we try to do in the book is to talk about how you can really make the behaviors that drive innovation success, the things that come naturally to children, things that come naturally or habitually to your organization. The title, you eat every day, you sleep every day, why aren't you innovating every day? And the book tries to give the answers for how to do that. Excellent, excellent. So how do you divide, uh, define innovation? Because most people, when we think of products as innovation, but you define it more broadly. Yeah, so we define innovation using five words, something different that creates value. And it's a short definition, but each of those words were chosen very carefully. Something is vague. A mistake that people make is they think innovation is only about new technologies. So therefore it's only done by a very small group of people. But innovation comes in lots of different flavors. Yes, it can be technology, but it also can be new ways to market or to, to communicate with customers or to run internal meetings. We use different to remind us that innovation isn't just about technological breakthroughs. It isn't just things like hypersonic planes or life-saving vaccines. It can be things that take the complicated and make it simple, take the expensive and make it affordable. Again, lots of different ways to do it. The last two words, create value, reminds us that innovation isn't an academic activity. It is a hands-on active activity. It's different from creativity. That's an input. But until you turn the spark of creativity into revenues, profits, improved employee engagement, improved customer satisfaction, or whatever you're trying to do, in our eyes, you haven't innovated. So that simple definition of innovation, you see, has a lot of nuances packed into it. Um. What's the profile of an innovator? Uh, the, the good news here, Mark, is the profile of an innovator is everybody who's joining this call here, everybody inside any organization, everybody in the world today. The argument we make in the book, and there's research that backs this up, is that we enter the world in a natural state of curiosity and creativity, which means that there is an innovator inside each and every one of us. 
yes, of course, you can hone and refine the skills that allow you to do something different that creates value, but the innate capacity, the innate capability is there. This is one of my strong convictions. The world's greatest untapped source of energy, I believe, isn't in the winds, it isn't in the water, it isn't inside the sun, it's in our established organizations that are filled with people that have the capacity to be great innovators if we can remove some of the constraints that hold them back, if we can help them to harness and amplify that capability that lies within. Well, and you talk about in the book that there's a difference between uh, innovator and inventor. What's the difference? Yeah, you know, one of the, the easiest ways to do this is to not get attacked by dogs, but one of the easiest ways to do this is just do a little thought experiment. If I asked any of you to put an icon or to doodle something on a piece of paper to remind yourself that this is something that's focused on innovation, I'm willing to bet almost all of you would draw a light bulb. That's the universal symbol for innovation. And if I were to ask you who invented the light bulb, the immediate response is very likely to be Thomas Edison. Now, it's a bit of a trick question. Those of you who know history know that the historical record about who invented the light bulb is pretty opaque. We don't actually know. A bunch of people can claim credit to the technology. The reason why we name Edison isn't because he was a great inventor. He was a couple thousand patents to his name, but he was an even better innovator because he was obsessed not just with figuring out the technology, but figuring out a full business system so that he could create value. The end customer could enjoy the benefits of money. The world's first electrical generating facility was owned by the Edison Electric Company, which operated in lower Manhattan. That company merged with one of its rivals to create General Electric, a company that still lives on today. Never forget Edison's most pertinent quote when it comes to innovation. Genius, he once said, is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That's the fundamental difference. The innovators, the inventors have to work, no doubt. The innovators have to sweat because they have to take that invention and turn it into tangible value in and markets inside their organization and so on. You need them both, of course, but the invention feeds into the innovation, leads to the creation of value. So I, I like this, what I write, uh, what you wrote in your book, you write, great innovators act confidently despite incomplete information, expect iteration and change, excel experimentation and celebrate judicious risk-taking. Who would you say embodies that today? Yeah, this, this certainly, and this goes under kind of the broad heading of being adept in ambiguity and recognizing that when you're innovating, the only thing you know for sure is that an early stage idea that you have is partially right and partially wrong. And the only way you can figure out which part is which is not through analysis, that helps, but it's not sufficient. It's through careful, controlled, focused experimentation. You have to learn by doing and people who really excel at this today are the people who are kind of the digital first companies. So if you're a Netflix subscriber, I imagine almost all of you are. I imagine almost everyone's watching a lot of Netflix right now. Every time you open up Netflix, it's running hundreds, if not thousands of simultaneous experiments. Some of them very small. You like this color, you like this font. If we put the recommendation here, blah, 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 blah. But a very disciplined approach to experimentation to help it figure out what really connects with customers. Amazon.com, the same thing. You get to this part of the world. In China, you've got Alibaba and Tencent that are doing the same thing. Down in Australia, you've got Atlassian. In Europe, you've got Booking.com. All organizations that have made experimentation really core of what they do and has created very powerful differentiation against their competitors. And those are big companies, of course, but small organizations can do this just as well. You don't have to be a company like Amazon.com to be good at testing. Any organization can embrace this discipline. My organization is 100 people, and we make sure whenever we're trying new things and we're a pretty, a pretty restless innovator, we always do it with the same discipline that an Amazon.com does it. We've had 11 things that haven't worked. We had one that worked pretty well, which is our, our core business. And we keep trying. And that's okay to have the 11 things not work because every time we learn something from it, it makes us better at providing advisory services. And maybe it's the 12th, maybe it's the 13th, maybe it's the 14th, whatever. This is the way these things go. Well, I had to put it on mute because my English bulldog is watching people um, do construction. So what are the five behaviors that drive innovation success? 
Right. So in the, the very first chapter of the book, we, we lay these behaviors out in as simple language as we possibly can. So innovation is something different that creates value. The first behavior is curiosity. You need to have the basic curiosity to start the quest to do something different that creates value. You have to be a little bit dissatisfied with the status quo. You have to be looking for better and different ways to do things. It can be as simple as asking questions like what if or how might we. The next key behavior is customer obsession. Remember, innovation is something different that creates value. To create value, you have to solve a problem that matters for someone. So great innovators really focus on the customers they're trying to serve. Now, those might be external customers, but there's plenty of room inside an organization to cross out customer and write in supplier or colleague or boss or stakeholder or whatever. It is the person for whom you are innovating. The goal of the great innovator is to know that person better than that person knows themselves, to have the empathetic connection so you can sense the problems they're trying to solve, what we will call the job they're trying to get done. The third behavior is collaboration. One of the most time-tested findings in the innovation literature is that magic happens at intersections, when different mindsets and skills collide together. Great innovators recognize that the best way to come up with a breakthrough idea is to live at intersections, intersect with and collide with different backgrounds, with people who think differently, because that will lead to great ideas. The fourth one we talked about just a second ago, adept in ambiguity. Recognize your initial idea is wrong, focus on the things you don't know, and relentlessly experiment around them. Finally, the fifth word is empowered. You can't do something different that creates value unless you do something. So great innovators don't sit there and think, they actually go and do. They ask forgiveness, not permission. They spin great stories that get people aligned behind them. They embrace a growth mindset where when they encounter challenges, and you always will, they always look for the opportunity the challenge creates, and they go on and do something different that creates value. So those are the five behaviors. And that's why so many people leave large organizations and strike out on their own because they get suffocated at these uh, larger organizations where maybe they talk about it but don't truly embrace it. Uh, but you talk about what's the importance of having across functional teams and can that be accomplished in any size company? Uh, absolutely. So again, this goes back to that time-tested finding that innovation magic happens at intersections. And if you're truly trying to break the back of a tough problem, the simple best piece of advice is just to get in different perspectives. It might be people from different functions. It might be people from different categories. It might be people outside of your company because people who look at the problem in a different way will see something different. And you can absolutely get the benefits of this no matter how big your company is. Is it doesn't necessarily have to be a cross-functional team. Sometimes it can just be intersecting ideas. We're big fans of the Pablo Picasso quote, which Steve Jobs, the legendary founder and CEO of Apple was also a fan of. Good artists copy, Picasso once said, great artists steal. Now, of course, I live in Singapore. The last thing I'm going to do is advise you to break the law, don't do that. But what I'm suggesting you do is to metaphorically steal. The idea is once you found a problem worth solving, once you know there's an itch that needs to be scratched, you figure out who else has solved that problem in the world. You go and talk to them, you go and study them. They're probably outside of the space you're in, but you borrow the idea from one context, bring it to yours, and you've short-circuited the process of doing something different that creates value. And anyone can do this. One simple example. A couple decades ago, Fiona Fairhurst was hired to design swimsuits for Speedo. Her job was to create swimsuits that would allow swimmers to go through the water more rapidly. What she did was study creatures in nature that are very large and go through the water at astonishing speeds. She studied sharks. She learned that sharks don't have smooth skin. They've got these things called denticles on them that basically propel them through the water. Like a good biomimicrist, she took what occurred in nature, applied it to the Speedo fast skin suit, and the rest is history. You can do the exact same thing. Maybe not be like Michael Phelps and break all the Olympic records, but you can borrow inspiration from anywhere. It is a great way to collaborate and accelerate the process of innovation. If you're putting a cross-functional team, what should be the ingredients of that team? 
Yeah, the, the number one thing to me, Mark, is that you've got diversity in how people think. So there's lots of ways that you can look at diversity. Of course, there's diversity in terms of gender, there's diversity in terms of background, in terms of the field that people studied, in terms of their basic demographic information and so on. And that's all good to think about. But the number one thing that I'm looking for when I'm looking to get a team that will have a diversity dividend is they just look at the world in different ways. And therefore, one will see what another misses. One's got experience that they combine together with somebody else. And often things like gender, ethnicity, race, country of origin will correlate. It will overlap with having a different mindset, but it won't always be exactly the same. So that's the first thing that I always look for different people who have different ways of approaching problems. Then of course, you want people who've got different degrees of functional expertise. You know, I have an economics degree undergraduate. I went to business school. I've been in the innovation field for a, a while. I've got a certain set of things that I know but there's a whole lot of stuff that I don't know. So if I'm trying to come up with a new idea, I want somebody who's just got different spikes. So they might be somebody who comes out of the art industry, or they might be somebody who comes at, at something from an engineering field. It's just really different than the field that I came from, just so together we can see things that individually either one of us might miss. How do you speed up time finding when to borrow? So this is one of the things that goes back to this idea of borrowing brilliantly. So the idea here is if you're working on a problem, you want to as quickly as possible find somebody who has already solved this problem. And the number one thing you do is you just make sure you found the right problem. This is one of the things that people get wrong with innovation. They try to come up with the answer first. What you really should do is come up with the question first. What really is the problem you're trying to solve? So back to Fiona Fairhurst at Speedo, she knew what she was looking for. She knew that she needed to design a swimsuit that went faster. She knew that there was something related to the texture of the suit. So the more tightly you define the problem, the clearer it is where you can go and look for inspiration to borrow. So if there's a piece of advice that comes out of this, it's a general piece of advice, don't worry about the answer. Get the problem right. Einstein allegedly once said, if he had an hour to save the world, he would spend 59 minutes framing the problem and only one minute solving it. Now, he was a, a pretty smart guy and maybe could save the world in a minute. But the, the basic idea you get, the more time you spend framing the problem, determining what you're trying to do, the easier it is to go and solve it because you really focus your attention. You know, people sometimes think innovation is just about brainstorming and sticky notes everywhere and we're going to let hundreds or thousands of flowers bloom. I've never seen that work. All you get is a lot of dead trampled flowers. You get a lot of sticky notes that come off the wall. Take the time to find the problem, to define what you're trying to do, and it really helps everything go faster. So what's the biggest problem, mistake that big companies make who want to innovate because they all talk about wanting to innovate, but we've seen among the fortune 500 <clears throat> in the past, even 50 years that what 10% of the fortune 500 still exists from 50 years ago. And yet everybody talks about innovation. They have research labs, everything else. Why do these companies aren't able to do it right? Yeah, it's a great question. And we'll explore it, I suspect, from a couple of different angles as we go through the conversation. And, you know, you're absolutely right. This is a perpetual struggle for large established organizations. You know, for as long as innovation has been a discipline, which is about 30 years now, you can go any year and look at poll results for large organizations and see the exact same finding, which is, yes, this is something that's important to us. Yes, this is something we've committed to. And yes, this is something that we are struggling with. I, just a very consistent finding. So one of the answers I, I gave just a second ago, which is the focus on answers over problems. So focusing too much on what the right answer is, focusing too much in, on what the technology is, not spending enough time thinking about the problem to solve. I think the bigger challenge inside large established organization goes way back to what I was saying about the fundamental truth of an early stage idea, that it's partially right and partially wrong. And I made the case that the only way you figure out which part is which was through controlled experimentation by doing things. Inside many large organizations, the bias is to try to get to truth through analysis. So once you have an early stage idea, you go and analyze it to death. 
You go and build these really elaborate financial forecasts. You talk to every expert you can find. You come up with what looks like a bulletproof launch plan. You get everybody aligned behind it. You get ready to go and launch. You follow an analytically driven approach to address innovation uncertainty. You inevitably learn a life lesson taught by the great American actor, philosopher, and occasional boxer, Mike Tyson, who once said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. The punch the would-be innovator receives is the plan that looks so good on paper was resting on fundamentally shaking, shaky assumptions. And this to me, Mark, more than anything else is the challenge of large organizations. Paralysis by analysis ultimately leads to plans that look good on paper, but bear little resemblance to reality. Then things don't work and they say, well, this shows why we shouldn't innovate. When the truth is, there's just another different, better, more effective way to do it. And we're gonna explore more of that because I think that there, I think that uh, when finance people were at the top of an organization outside of a financial company, um, they tend to overanalyze everything and not uh, take risk to go and come up with new ideas. One of the things that you write in your book uh, was how important it is to empower younger staff members because you quote some uh, power numbers. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so there's a couple angles to think about the, the power of empowering, the power of empowering people at different levels of organizations. You know, one of the really interesting findings from the creativity literature is if you ask where is a surprising source of innovative ideas inside organizations, it comes from procurement departments. Now, usually procurement departments are not places where people say these are people who are brimming with innovation energy, but procurement people are right at the edge of the market. They're touching the market all the time. And because they're in close contact with the market, it's a great way to get insight. The same is true for the younger employees in your organization. In many cases, they're part of the front line of the organization. They're more dispersed at the edges. And because of that, they might be seeing things that you might miss. They're also experiencing tomorrow today. They're already living the future in many of the things that they're doing, which gives them new ways to think about things. This is one of the great benefits of the children that I have. They are excellent guides to what's going to happen a decade from now. I watch the way that they consume media. I watch the way that they communicate with friends. I watch the things that connect with them and the things that don't. It's not mainstream now, but I knew about TikTok years before other people did because you could see what the teenagers were doing early and that is always a guide to what will happen in the future. And finally, it, it, it's just interesting to reflect on the different, what's known as neuroplasticity that you see of younger people in organization, meaning the degree to which a brain will be able to change and think about new things. There's an absolutely awesome video that anyone who's into change, I highly recommend watching from Destin Sandlin, It's Smarter Every Day, that talks about the challenge of an adult learning to ride a backwards bike. So what is a backwards bike? He had a welder make one change to the bike, change a key screw in it, so that when you turn the handlebars left, you go right. When you turn the handlebars right, you go left. You say, well, easy enough. It's not that hard to train your brain to do it. But it turns out riding a bike is actually incredibly complicated. And if you spent your entire life learning how to ride a normal bike, it's really hard to unlearn that. It took Destin Sandlin eight months, eight months of careful practice to learn how to ride the backwards bike. He has a six-year-old son. It took his six-year-old son two weeks, two weeks to learn how to ride a backward bike because he didn't have to unwire himself. So again, the younger people in your organization who might not be fully part of the system, who've got the higher neuroplasticity, who are closer to the edges of the organization, who are in some cases living tomorrow today, it is a goldmine of innovation energy to tap into. I agree with you totally. That's why I like teaching at colleges and hearing the newest ideas from kids because they're unencumbered with bad baggage that, we, that everybody accumulates over so many years in terms of their thinking. One of the questions that's asked here is how does corporate venture capitalists perform? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the very short answer is it depends as is the case with almost any of those questions. Corporate venture capital can be a really powerful thing for organizations to do as long as they really do two things right. Number one, they are very clear in what is the intent of the corporate venture capital unit they are setting up. So sometimes people do it because they want financial returns. 
Sometimes they do it because they want to get an early look at new technologies. Sometimes they do it because they just want to see what it's like to participate in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. No right or wrong way to do it, but you first want to understand what is our strategic intent. And then as always, you want to match the structure to the strategy. If you're just trying to generate financial returns, which by the way, no shame in that, then you really need to have professional venture capitalists who know what they're doing. You need it to be a separate fund that's separate from your organization, blah, 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 blah. If the point is you really want to learn, then you want to create tighter linkages between the established organization and the corporate venture arm. If you have it disconnected, you're never going to learn the right things. You actually want your people to go and play active roles in the ventures in which you're investing. So if you think about what the strategy is and you make sure you structure in a way that supports the strategy, as people who have done this for a long time, like in Intel in the United States or Singtel here in Singapore, you can have something that is a very powerful way to watch, observe, and participate in early changes that get you that much more ready for the future. But it requires that you think through it and you take the right actions. I think Amazon is trying to do that with their corporate venture capital but not necessary to the benefit of the people they're investing in, as I've been reading. Do you work with Amazon? No, I, I don't. And, you know, Amazon's a very interesting company, of course, because everybody in the field studies its practices. And there are a lot of things that if you look at how Amazon approaches innovation, you look at with much admiration, you know, the idea that we have to keep ourselves in day one, the willingness to experiment, the focus on really focusing on the customers. Those are, are all things that you say, these are practices that we ought to follow. One can reasonably debate the way that employees are treated. One can reasonably debate the way that stakeholders are treated. I have not worked at Amazon. I, I know as much as you do reading popular press and so on, but it does appear as always, there's two sides to the ledger. Of course. Any, tech, uh, any techniques to start an innovation project in a company that's culture is basically analysis by paralysis. Yeah, you know, this gets to the, the empowered thing. You know, it's just you get stuff done. Just start doing stuff. You know, it, it's the one of the things that really struck me when I moved out to Singapore in 2010. I actually did not move out here to take the consulting business I had built out in the United States and bring it to Asia. I ended up doing that, but that was not the original intent. Instead, we had set up a venture capital investment and incubation arm here in Singapore. And I took that part of our business over. And one of the things that struck me just so strongly in the early days working on that venture capital arm is how the people who would come to pitch us businesses would come not pitching business plans, but pitching businesses. Now, what's the difference? A business plan is facts and figures, slides, spreadsheets, and paper. A business is a website and customers and revenues. And the people who were pitching these businesses, they didn't have capital behind them. I mean, they might have a few hundred bucks or whatever, but they had basically built the businesses spending almost nothing. This is the reality of today's world. In many contexts, it is not a lack of money that stops people from doing things. It might be imagination, it might be ambition, it might be hustle, but it's not a lack of financial resources. So I have found in organization after organization, a key way to change the conversation is to move from, here's all the analysis I've done. And people will say, inevitably, please go and do more of it because I have an insatiable appetite for analysis. The alternative approach is to say, here's what I learned without spending any money. Wouldn't you like to learn more? <laughs> Once you reframe the question of wouldn't you like to learn more, it's a completely different conversation. And look, this won't work in every organization. Some places are just too hostile. There might be different advice that one gives to an innovator in an environment that is too hostile, such as get to a different environment. But if there's at least a crack, you go and make stuff happen and seek to change the conversation. Uh, the process you talked about reminds me a lot like uh, design thinking. Do you use that process? Yeah. So you know, my, my, my belief, you know, I, I've been in, in the innovation field, as I mentioned, for, for a while. There's a lot of good schools of thinking out there. There's design thinking, there's user-centered design, there's TRIZ, there's Blue Ocean Strategy, there's disruptive innovation, blah, 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 blah. They all say the same basic thing. They use different words for it. You know, so somebody who comes out of a design thinking school will talk about empathetic design, abductive thinking, rapid prototyping. In a site, we talk about jobs to be done and test and learn, but the basic ideas are all the same. 
it's why I try to keep things pretty simple and say that, you know, what you're really trying to do is be curious and customer obsessed and collaborate and, and go and run experiments by being adept in ambiguity. But absolutely, I think design thinking is a very robust way to deal with the fundamental uncertainty that comes along with innovation. And what I like about human-centered design is it does put the human first. It's a big focus on the customer and having an empathetic connection with them. And then the idea of rapid testing to learn through experiments what works and what doesn't. So yes, I, I do kind of wish the different schools wouldn't have all these big words to describe what they do. You know, and, and empathetic thinking and abductive reasoning and rapid prototypes, just a lot of syllables. <laughs> There's just simpler ways to say things. And because people all use these big words, everyone kind of talks a little bit past each other. When again, everyone's kind of saying the same thing. Nothing against any design thinkers. Again, it's a very powerful set of thinking. I just wish there wasn't this kind of, you know, us versus them thing in, in, in the field. Uh, in our COVID-prone world, uh, what role simulation plays in testing new innovation? Uh, never more important. You know, so one of the things that we talk about in the book, and I first talked about this a couple of books ago in a book called The First Mile. It tells one of my favorite innovation stories, which is the story of the Wright brothers. You know, 120 years ago, everybody in the world is trying to solve this problem. Birds can fly and humans can't. And it was these two bicycle merchants from Ohio that figure it out. And the thing that I think is really interesting is how they systematically approach the uncertainty behind man flight. So before they flew planes, they flew kites and gliders. And the great thing about kites and gliders, which are the equivalent of prototypes, is when they crash, no big deal. You go and try again. I think there's a, another part of the story that's less well-known, but even more important. 1901, the Wright brothers built a cardboard box, bicycle spoke wire, and a fan. And they created the first version of what we now would call a wind tunnel. This allowed them in two months to run 200 experiments, testing 30 different types of wing design and generate real data that ultimately led to breakthroughs like wing warping. So this is an example of something that's like a, a simulation that makes it easier and more efficient to go and experiment. And in a world where we've got constraints, we might not be able to be physical with people, we might not be able to travel in some cases at all, in some cases as much as we might like, Having good simulations are absolutely critical to effectively test and continue to learn. Absolutely critical. In your eyes, what responsibility do established consulting firms bear in the innovation um, uh, paralysis of larger companies and government organizations by bringing in templated solutions rather than more organically developed solutions that take into account the client's existing strengths and human resources? Uh, that's a uh, that's a pointed question. So uh, let, let's see. Let, let me just uh, just admit admit biases. So you know my my history in consulting. I have the 17 years at Innosight. I cut my teeth at McKinsey and Company 24 years ago. Now I spent two years as a business analyst there. So you know I, I've seen it from both the very large and the smaller. I have colleagues who came from McKinsey Boston Consulting Group, who's out a bunch of other big consulting companies. Look, I I, I would say two things in response to the question. Number one, ultimately, a consultant is hired to do a job for a client. So, you know, I think certainly there can be some culpability on the part of the consultant, but, you know, the, the client ultimately has to take ownership of it. So, yes, shame on the consultants for bringing a templatized solution for a problem where there's a lot better answers, but shame on the client for accepting a templatized solution where there's a lot better answer to the problem. And the second thing I would say is, you know, to me, it's one of the, the great joys I've had working at our, our smaller organization. We know exactly what we know. There's a lot of things we don't know. Uh, we know areas of innovation. We know innovation-driven growth. We know strategy through uncertainty. We are legitimate experts on those topics. And we're experts on it because it is all we do. If you asked us to go and design an organization after a post-merger integration, I mean, I could probably make something up, but I wouldn't give a particularly good answer. And I think that's one of the challenges you sometimes see with large organizations. They hire consultants that they know, even if they're not the best people to solve a particular problem. And I think one thing that you will increasingly see in a world where you have more decentralization, you have more digital dislocation, is it is a great time for experts who can very quickly be anywhere in the world and show their expertise to go and continue to take pieces of the business away from the bigger, more integrated companies. One person's perspective. That's a very good question. Uh, how do you feel about mediation and relaxing uh, using visualization when trying to problem solve and innovate? 
That's again, another great question. So I would say two things here. Number one, I, I think doing it as part of the innovation process, it, it, I mean, the research is just really clear, right? The research is very clear that getting grounded and being aware is a great way to open up different pathways in your brain and to see things that you otherwise might not see. So meditation, visualization, and so on, I think are great things as part of innovation processes. Even more critically, I think, me and my friend Michael Putz in March of this year wrote an article in the Sloan Management Review that tried to address what I think is an interesting puzzle. So Clayton Christensen, our, our co-founder, who sadly passed away earlier this year, he wrote the first mass market article about disruptive innovation in 1995, 25 years ago. It's a very well studied, a very well understood phenomenon. There is a very clear technical answer to it. There's very clear literature about how you defeat the dilemmas of disruption, yet companies still fall prey to them again and again and again. The argument we made in the article, the, which we call the delusions of disruption, is the fundamental problem is that companies are run by humans and humans suffer from biases and blind spots. Now, understanding them is a starting point, but we argue more deeply embracing processes or techniques like mindfulness, like meditation, like visualization is a very critical aid for executives that want to manage the dual challenge of delivering today and creating tomorrow because it allows them to pause, to be in a moment, to be able to look at problems from multiple perspectives, to ultimately address that challenge that F. Scott Fitzgerald laid down more than 75 years ago, when he said the test of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two opposed thoughts in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. I strongly believe that mindfulness, breathing exercises, et cetera, is at least one of the keys to rise up to that challenge laid down by Fitzgerald. That was a long answer, Mark, I'm sorry, but that, that you did hit a nerve with something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I'm glad that question was asked. Uh, you provide a lot of stats on improved success of companies that innovate, but one thing successful innovators do is provide fail-safe environments. Why wouldn't everyone do that and explain what a fail-safe environment is? Yeah, so the basic idea, and I'm gonna to bring together two different researchers here, Amy Edmondson and Carol Dweck, the basic idea of a fail-safe environment is if you fail in what Amy Edmondson would call an intelligent way, that is, you've thought critically about your idea, you've identified the key assumptions, you found smart ways to run experiments, you bounded the risk around it, and you've extracted learning from it. If you have failed in an intelligent way, that's something that should be celebrated rather than punished. Now, of course, everyone in innovation knows this. They know trial and error experimentation is good. They know that intelligent failure is good. Why don't organizations embrace this? Well, Carol Dweck, if you don't recognize the name, you might know her foundational research where he, she said there are basically two different mindsets. There's the fixed mindset, there's the growth mindset. The growth mindset believes in possibility. It believes in learning. It believes that you can achieve anything. The fixed mindset says results reveal how smart you are, how talented you are, that your capacity is essentially fixed. If your organization biases towards a fixed mindset, a failure shows that the people who are working on something are stupid, that the people who are working on something didn't do their homework. It is self-evident because a fixed mindset sees failure as evidence that people don't know what they're doing. So this is the reason why in many organizations, it is very far from a fail-safe environment. In many organizations, people will ask us, how do we provide the same kind of upsides that a Silicon Valley startup might receive? That's not the problem. The problem is the downside for failure is perceived to be so brutal inside many organizations that people dare not do anything. They'd rather just sit and play it safe because they perceive that their head gets lopped off if they try to do anything different. Any it's a solvable problem, but it's obviously it's a very acute one. Oh, any of us have done consulting uh, with large companies, see that all the time because people feel like I've worked so many years to get to chief marketing officer level or whatever it is. And they want to just follow what everybody else is doing because they don't want to put themselves at risk for losing their job as opposed to encouraging that. Uh, what's, what, uh, what is normal organizations doing extraordinary things? And do you have examples? 
Yeah, so th this is one of my, my personal fascinations and one of the themes that runs through Eat, Sleep, Innovate. You know, I, I think it's great to talk about the Amazon.coms and the Alibabas and the Atlassians and Tencent and places like that. But that's not what most organizations are like. Most organizations are not digital pioneers. Most organizations don't have their founders still running the place. Most organizations are normal organizations. But the argument we make in the book is normal organizations are capable of doing extraordinary things. And we call them no debts, normal organizations doing extraordinary things. And we try to primarily focus on them in the book. So yeah, you'll see a little bit of Amazon, a little bit of Microsoft, you'll see a little bit of Google, you'll see a little bit of Disney Pixar. So that's definitely there. But the no debts that we have in the book are places like the Salvation Army, which has done some amazingly innovative things in lots of different ways. Things like UNICEF, where throughout the world, it's found very innovative ways to deliver against its mission of helping children all around the globe. Organizations like the Settlement Music School, a not-for-profit in the Philadelphia area that's done some very powerful, innovative things. And then one of the deeper case studies in the book, DBS Bank here in Singapore. When I arrived in Singapore in 2010 and I was looking around at where to bank, even though DBS is the largest bank in Singapore, Nobody suggested it because it was the worst run bank in Singapore, lowest customer satisfaction scores among the banks in Singapore. Last year, DBS won an award by Euromoney that recognized it as the best bank in the world, the first bank in Southeast Asia to win that title. It gave it three of the biggest titles that different organizations give to banks in the world. It's now considered to be a digital pioneer, somebody that really embraces innovation at its core. This is a bank a regulated entity in a process-obsessed place like Singapore. It now functions like a 28,000-person startup. My belief is if DBS can do it, any organization in the world can do it as well. Uh, tell us about the concept you call beans and how that impacts organizations. So beans, and I'll, I'll use an example from DBS to bring it to life. So the idea here is pretty simple. Innovation is something different that creates value. The challenge you have inside organizations is organizations are not wired to do something different. They're wired to do what they are currently doing, better, faster, or cheaper. That means what you have to do is break the organizational inertia to encourage people to do something different. The idea of a bean is ripped straight from the behavioral change literature, where there's a lot of writing about how individuals change habits it adapts the concepts there and brings it to an organizational context. A bean is a behavior enabler, B-E, artifact and nudge, A-N. The behavior enabler helps you do the hard work of behavior change. It gives you a checklist, it gives you a routine, it gives you a ritual so that you can do the thoughtful work of doing something different. The artifacts and nudges are the indirect support where you don't have to think at all but the new behavior is encouraged. So let me give you an example from DBS. There's about 10 different examples from DBS in the book. I'm only gonna give you one of them. So DBS had this aspiration. We wanna function like a 28,000 person startup. It said, well, what exactly does a 28,000 person startup do? One thing it said a 28,000 person startup does is it collaborates and it's agile in the way in which it solves problems. DBS said, well, why aren't we doing this? Where are we falling short? It pointed a finger at meetings. Meetings would start late, they would end later. People would show up because their calendars told them to, not because they had any reason to, to be there. They would get bored, they get on their devices, they get distracted and so on. A lot of time is wasted, decisions aren't made, et cetera. So DBS introduced a bean a few years ago called Mojo, M-O-J-O. -O. The Mo stands for the meeting owner. This is the person who calls the meeting to order, that make sure that there is a clear recommendation that comes out of the meeting and make sure it's a good collaborative meeting with everybody participating. The Joe is the joyful observer. They're appointed by the Mo at the beginning of the meeting. Their job is to watch. If people are distracted, whether they're in a room or over Zoom, they can call timeout. They can say, everybody put your devices down. Let's make sure we focus on the meeting. At the end of the meeting, they give public feedback to the Mo about how well they did. After that, everybody takes out an app and they go and rate them out. How well did they do against their jobs? This is a great bean. You've got the behavior enabler, the ritual of the Mo being named, the Joe being appointed. You've got an app that helps remind people of the behaviors they wanna follow. You've got great nudges, the Joe sitting in the room 
silently reminds everybody of the behaviors they're trying to follow, and it works. Before DBS did this, 40% of people said meetings encourage collaboration. Today, that number is 90%. DBS estimates that it has saved a half million employee hours as of the end of last year because meetings are much more efficient. Now, we've got 100 other ones like that in the book. Don't worry, I won't go through all of them. But ideas, again, that you can steal to encourage the behaviors that drive innovation success by borrowing principles from the habit change literature. How do you do being a storming session? How does that work? Yeah, so the idea here is it's like a brainstorm for beans. And chapter four of the book goes through uh, excruciating might not be the right word, but it goes through a great deal of detail about how you actually go and do it. Basically, it comes down to a three-step process. Number one, before you have the beanstorm session, do your homework. Make sure that you're very clear about the behaviors that you're trying to encourage. They might be the five innovation behaviors that we describe in the book, or there might be something else that really matters to your organization. It doesn't matter, but you're clear about what those behaviors are. You're also clear about what you're doing instead of those behaviors. Now, I chose those words very consciously. I didn't say what's stopping you from doing it, because if you ask people why they're not following those behaviors, you'll get answers like, we don't have time, we need bigger budgets, we need more training. And often we find there's something else going on. There's a behavioral blocker where instead of doing one thing, people are doing something else. So you take the time to determine the behaviors to figure out the behavioral blockers. The second step of the beanstorm is you gather people together and you let them experience the benefit of following those behaviors. So in the book, we give a case example from Singtel, the largest telecommunications company in Asia, with their HR community. We use the five generic innovation behaviors. On the first day, we had people in small teams actually come up with innovative ideas. We had them be curious, where they went and asked questions. We had them be customer obsessed, where they interviewed real customers of the HR group, which would be Singtel employees. We had them collaborate. We had them come up with ideas, et cetera, so they could experience firsthand the benefit of these behaviors which made it clear to them that this was a problem worth working on. Then the next activity was to come up with behavior enablers, artifacts and nudges to go and encourage the behaviors to overcome the behavioral blockers. So that's the basic idea. You determine what you're trying to do, you let people experience it, then you have a focused brainstorming session where people come up with these beans. In the case of Singtel, we gave them many of the examples in the book for inspiration and they came up with their own beans as an example. One of the things they said is we need to be more customer obsessed as an HR community. That is, we've got to think about employees. That has to be front and center in every HR meeting we have, but we don't do that. Instead, when we get to meetings, we immediately jump to what are we talking about? What's the specific proposal? So they came up with a bean called which, where is the customer here? A check-in ritual they would have at meetings to make sure they were thinking about the customer. Ask what is their concern? What is the thing that we're working on? You can imagine what are the artifacts to support this. You've got stickers that go on laptops. They have a little witch icon. You can even have a broomstick in a meeting if you want it. But a very simple but powerful way to encourage HR representatives to be customer-centric, something that normal people came up with in a workshop, something that has helped that organization be that much more innovative. So this leads me to uh, Solus Artifacts. Explain what the Solus Artifact is and why don't they help inspire innovation? Yeah, you know, this, this gets to some of the deeper things in the book. You know, so the book is about culture. The book is about how do you create a culture where the behaviors that drive innovation success come naturally. And it's important to recognize what culture is and what it isn't. Often, when we describe the culture of an organization, the first thing we do is talk about the artifacts, what we see. So a highly innovative organization in worlds where we're not all working from home, you might go and see a resplendent corporate cafeteria, you would see foosball tables, you might even see a slide like you'd see at a playground where people are going between levels. Now those are interesting, but that's not really what defines culture. What defines culture are the actual things that people do on a day-to-day -day basis and the beliefs that lead to them doing those things. Now, beliefs are really hard to change. Artifacts are easy to change, but don't have much impact, which is why we suggest focusing on those behaviors. As Richard Pascal once said, it is easier for an adult to act their way into a new way of thinking than to think their way into a new way of acting. 
So with that wind up, soulless artifacts. Let me tell this by example. A few years ago, I was visiting an organization in Cambodia. I was there on vacation with my family. It was a very inspirational organization. It, it got people in Cambodia together, had them harvest silkworms, take the silk from the worms, turn it into garments for tourists. They employed hundreds, if not thousands of Cambodians, produced great stuff for tourists. It was a very inspiring business. I'm walking around and I see this blue box. The blue box is called the ideas box. And when I'm looking at it, at first I'm inspired. You know, they're trying to get ideas from employees. And it says for you, for your well-being, for our well-being. You're like, yes, I love it. This organization is innovating. Then you go and look at the ideas box. And you notice this blue box has this great big lock on it. And not only is there a great big lock on it, the lock is rusted over, which means no one in the history of the ideas box had ever opened it. So this is a soulless artifact, where it's something that you think will encourage innovation, but all it does is encourage deep cynicism because it reminds people of what you're not doing. So don't create an ideas box with a lock on it. Uh, well, and everybody always thinks the foosball and all the other crap that they throw in there is a, a joke and really doesn't add any uh, real value anyway. The foosball and the ping pong tables and all that stuff. Um, what is the shadow strategy and why is that an innovative cancer to the organization? Yeah, we, we've kind of been hinting around this as we've gone through our discussion. I, I made the point that innovation is something different that creates value, but organizations don't default to doing something different. And in, in our eyes, this is the biggest barrier that makes it hard for established organizations to successfully innovate. You might say that you want to innovate. You might have a stated strategy where a leader proclaims, we're going to do all these different things. But strategy is not what you say. Strategy is what you actually do. Strategy is what the engineers engineer. It's what the marketers market. It's what the finance people fund. It's what the salespeople sell, and on and on and on. The shadow strategy represents all the day-to-day -day decisions that each function makes. And those decisions are typically reinforced by structure, system, incentives, norms, and more. And they are reinforced in ways that enable you to make today better, but they inhibit you doing something different. This is the shadow strategy, the unstated strategy of the organization, which is the sum result of all the day-to-day -day decisions people make to allocate time and money and assets in organizations. And left unchecked, the strategy, shadow strategy always pulls you backward it never propels you forward. This is why you've got to break the institutionalized inertia with the bean concept that we talked about before. Uh, what do you think uh, happened to great innovative companies like General Electric, Kodak, and Ford? I mean, these are companies that go back a hundred years and, and they're still successful companies. They're, uh, well, Kodak, maybe not so much, but General Electric, you know, they're billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies and Ford is as well. Uh, no one thinks of them as innovators. You know, I don't have students that say, oh my God, I want to go work for Ford or GE or, or things like that. Did they stop uh, being, as you write in the book, perpetually paranoid? What happened there? Yeah, it's, it's a, a super complex question, Mark. And, you know, it's, again, some breadcrumbs as we talked about. The delusions of disruption that I talked about before, I think in each case led them to systematically underestimate how much they needed to do differently to respond to disruption and overestimate the difficulty of doing those things. So therefore they didn't do enough. I think you had circumstances where you, you had people who just didn't structure in the right sort of way. So I tried to ask an established organization to do something it wasn't capable of doing. And I think you might've had in some cases, some specific leaders that ended up being problematic in those organizations. But you know, I, I think the punishing thing for any organization like that uh, Eastman Kodak, I think, is one of the clearest ones. It's not a problem of being myopic, of being blind. You know, people will say, you know, what got Eastman Kodak? Well, the first answer is digital imaging. Okay, well, Eastman Kodak had some of the best digital cameras on the market, good market share there. And people say, oh, no, it wasn't that. It, it was the disappearance uh, of digital cameras into phones and all digital moving from printing to photo sharing. So, well, actually, Kodak saw that too in 2001, 2001. They bought Ophoto, an early photo sharing site. This is before Facebook exists. That started in 2004. It's before Instagram existed. That started in 2007. So Kodak was right there. Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix for 50 million bucks in 2000. Yeah. It is never a problem of seeing it. It is always a problem of doing it. 
Um, how are companies like 3M, WL, Gore, and P&G managed to maintain their innovative edge? I mean, those guys are still, and people want to go still work for those companies. Hey, it was, you know, it's interesting to think about the, those three companies. I'd make a couple observations about them. Number one, they're all companies that have a pretty strong engineering bent. And I, I think the idea that we need to experiment and sometimes things don't work and that's okay. I think engineers just kind of naturally get that. So I, I think that's something that helps each of those companies. None of them rely on a single product or a single brand. They're all people that have lots of different products in lots of different categories. So I think that helps. And there's just a natural diversity that helps push innovation forward. And in each of those cases, they're willing to tolerate failure. They're willing to say goodbye to things. P&G regularly is exiting categories. It's regularly selling off parts of its business. Nothing is sacred. So I think that creates a viewpoint that it's okay for us to try different things. It's okay if not everything works out. Those companies all have had ups and downs. It's not been a, a perfect success story, but those are at least a few of the things that I think have led them have some pretty good successes over the decades. But you really think of them as, as creative, innovative companies, no matter the ups and downs or not. People uh, think of them as creative companies. And I wonder, is there, a, is there one background over another that encourages more innovation at the C-suite? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. You know, so the, we talked about the fixed versus growth mindset. So I think the growth mindset absolutely is something that helps. The other thing that I just reflect on a little bit is we did a study a couple years ago tied to my last book called Dual Transformation about large organizations that have transformed themselves. And one of the patterns that we saw that recurred in a number of places is a CEO that drove a successful transformation in many cases was what we called an insider outsider. So think about Satya Nadella at Microsoft. He's a Microsoft lifer. He's been there for his entire career, but he didn't grow up in the core office suite. He grew up on the cloud. And because of that, he knew how to navigate the organization, but he also would bring a bit of a different perspective for things. So I think if you get somebody who has the growth mindset, who sees possibility, and also is able to look at things from at least a somewhat different perspective, I think that can help to, to enable innovation a ton. Um, how has the internet changed the way companies innovate and what future technologies do you think will have the greatest impact on in the innovation process? Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing, of course, the, the internet has done is it's just made things happen a lot faster. You know, so you're, you're able to test more rapidly, you're able to learn a lot more rapidly, ideas spread like this, which, you know, is an interesting paradox. You think that would be good for startups, but I argue in an article I wrote a few years ago, the new corporate garage, it's actually better for large companies because, you know, a startup used to have a long time to go and hone their edge. Now, the second a startup gets a whiff of success, it fights against endless copycats. Large companies have already been through that. They've got unique assets of scale and they can take advantage of the same enabling technologies and can have the best of both worlds, scale plus entrepreneurialism. Anyway, the, the technologies that we're watching, I'd say the, the three biggest one are big data slash artificial intelligence, which can really change the way that you sense patterns and look for innovation opportunities. Distributed ledger technologies, Bitcoin would be one example of that, which can change the way that you interface in supply chains and the way in which you do contracts and the way in which you do anything that involves flow of information. And then robotics, as robotics can change the way that a lot of different things are manufactured, delivered, and distributed, which in many industries has big impact. So in all cases, I'm an eternal half-full person. I think these are things that can create tremendous opportunities for people, but as always, it comes down to thinking and acting in the right sort of way. So uh, my last question is we're running out of time here. Are many corporate hackathons yielding any useful products and services? Well, are many creating useful products and services? I would argue that's a bit of a leading question. A lot of the things that are corporate hackathons, I think, sadly, do go into the soulless artifacts, what we call in the book, Inoganda, uh, Innovation Meets Propaganda, because there hasn't been the right work to wrap around it. So I, I think hackathons can have huge impact if you've defined the problem you're trying to solve beforehand, and you've got something on the back end of the hackathon to actually do something with the ideas. If it's just, let's get people together in real life or virtually to come up with ideas, that are gonna go into the equivalent of the last scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you remember that, they get the, the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. They go stick it in this massive warehouse that no one's gonna look at. If that's what you're doing with the ideas from your hackathon, don't be surprised that people don't show up the next time you do it. 
For sure. I, I saw one last question here. Are, are there a few books that you recommend people read aside from your own great books? Is there any other books that you recommend that people should be thinking about reading? Uh, there's a ton, a ton. But, you know, in Eat, Sleep, Innovate, we, we have a, a Culture of Innovation bookshelf. And I'll just pick out two, two highlights because they're the first two that popped into my mind. The book that Ed Catmull wrote, Ed Catmull, the, the co-founder of Pixar with Steve Jobs, Creativity Incorporated, I think is the best book length treatment of how you really drill innovation at scale inside a large organization. So I, I think Creativity Inc. is an absolute must read. And then Amy Edmondson, who I mentioned earlier, her book, The Fearless Organization came out in 2018. And it's just a really good, clear view of how you create psychological safety inside organizations, which I think above all else is an absolute precursor to do what we've talked about here. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I, I want to get some of your other books and bring you back again. I thought it was terrific. And your answers were great and very thought provoking. And I think it's going to help a lot of the companies here. So I hope you have a wonderful day. And thanks again for staying up later in Singapore and talking to us this morning. And, no and thanks to everyone for their great questions. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thanks, everybody, for the engagement. Love the questions. Well, have a great, safe week.